You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast, my friends. I am Louis Cornfield. My guest today is the great Rob Weber. Uh, Rob, thank you for being with us. Great to be here on the podcast. Thank you. You've been doing comedy in New York for 20 years, 20 plus years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I took my first improv class in 95 okay. in New York, yeah. so, yeah, theoretically. And, um, I, I like, I want to kind of get right into it, because you, you, I don't have your list of credits right in front of me, but you've done a ton of stuff, and, and lots and lots of videos, and been on Late Night, and, and VH1, and MTV. Yeah, and I'm still here. And you're still here. <laughs> yeah. and, but you also balance it with, like, a regular non-comedy full-time job. Yeah, time, right? yeah, I do. So maybe this is like a really broad question to dive into, but uh, uh, like, how has how have you like integrated your life with comedy? What does your life look like? Uh, it it's busy. I don't have any kids. You know, hopefully someday I will, but yeah. I'll be a late starter definitely. Um, I think I I think when you enjoy doing it, you just keep doing it. So, and I think there's value to that, even if uh, you're not making big money doing it. Yeah, like you don't have to quit. I think if it's part of your life, you can continue doing it if you love it. So, have you have you been? Are you like a plan guy when it comes to career stuff, or have you kind of just followed your interests down the line? Oh, definitely following my interests down the line. Yeah, Yeah. no big plan. Yeah, I I went to college for music education, graduated with broadcasting, did worked in a record store for a few years. then uh, decided to move to New York to go to a, a conservatory, American Musical and Dramatic Academy, and I was there in the early 90s, and that's where I first did improv, and then it was like a light bulb going off. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, this is all right. I like this. Yeah. It's like, oh, I found something I like, uh, I'm good at. Yeah. I thought I was good at it. So uh, um, I waited for about five years after that and did not do much acting at all. And I think that's a big myth about uh, being a waiter. It's a good job for an actor. I think it's probably the worst job for an actor. Uh, it's hard to get the time off. Mm-hmm. They're always looking to, you got to get a shift covered on a Monday lunch. Who wants that? Mm-hmm. So, And the impossibility of waking up for a 9 a.m. audition if you're closing a bar every night. Yeah. So, um, but then uh, a crane fell on the particular restaurant I was working at, and they had to shut down, so I started temping and uh, wound up working in these uh, financial firms. So I've been uh, working there. What do you do, if you don't mind me asking? I am a, what's my, it's a portfolio associate is my official title now. Yeah. But, uh, take stock orders and things and answer phones, book meetings. That's a big leap from music education. <laughs> yeah, that's I've gone for, well, I kept getting C's in trombone, so I had to make a life choice early uh, in college and decided I didn't want the major thing to do with my life to get C's in it. So, what, so what, is, it what does that entail exactly? Uh, music ed? Well, both. Yeah, we can go back, uh, we can go back to music ed. But uh, what, what was the plan? What was the dream? Uh, I, I somehow thought I'm going to be a music teacher mm-hmm. when I get out of college, and uh, I, I couldn't do it. I just, I just couldn't. 
I couldn't play trombone well enough. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't feel good about it. I felt, you know, a little fraudulent if I was going to be teaching trombone, if I couldn't really play it well. Are you expected to be a master of every instrument in an orchestra? Not a master, but you do have to learn uh, trumpet, clarinet. Uh, I took classical guitar for a couple semesters. I took harp for a couple semesters. Wow. Uh, I got A's in harp. I could have been a harpist. Wow. Um, uh, piano class, like they have these classrooms with uh, ten pianos in them, and and uh, the teacher could listen to any one of the pianos at any time while you're playing along with the class. Oh wow, kind of crazy. Wow. Um, but uh, I did a lot of musical theater stuff on the side, so that's what made me come to New York to go to this uh, uh, school AMDA called American Musical Dramatic Academy. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a little shady. It's for profit, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, took out a big loan to go there for two years, but uh, uh, it's also lifelong work. So it's not like you leave there with oh, I'm going to be on Broadway now. It's right, like you got to keep working at stuff. Do you feel like you use the skills that you got over there, or, or... oh yeah, yeah, I. My last show, I was Jean Valjean at this thing. So, yeah. <laughs> my last sketch show. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so what was the improv like for you there? What was that first class? Very basic Spolin exercises, um, basic scene work. You know, two person scenes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed it, and the teacher taught privately, like drop in classes. So I started going to those doing different things that never didn't do a show for a couple of years. I think, um, I think I fell out of it. And then 98, uh, second city started doing workshops in New York city. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Martin DeMott, who was one of the, he was the head of their training center at the time he moved out here and, uh, he opened a school and I think, yeah, I was in the first class. Um, didn't last long. He passed away, unfortunately, in 2001. Uh, but um, at, I was in class with Lennon Parham, who was on USA, mm-hmm. playing house now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Leslie Mizell is a big New York City uh, comedian. And uh, I met a bunch of guys there. And we started working together and forming groups and doing shows. And we had one called The Orphans. And... We started, we did, we worked out of the comedy cellar. The, uh, uh stand-up club? Yeah. In, yeah. uh, down in the village, right? Yeah. Second City had Monday nights before nine or something like that. Mm. And it was kind of a battle sometimes, uh, whether it was, uh, we had to pay a two drink minimum for the performers or not. Mm-hmm. It kind of changed every night, uh, we performed. Uh, but that's where you started meeting the people you would hang out with and, uh, uh, we had a group called the Orphans, and we started doing this organic improv stuff. And out of the Orphans, that kind of people drifted away from that. And then we made a Johnny Lunchpail, uh, which was like this organic improv group, and that that really hit for me. So that lasted a long time. That was yeah. a good thing. When I f- first uh, started, Johnny Lunchpail was like the legendary team that everybody. The the legendary team that I never got to see. Eventually, I saw you guys at Magnet. You had a you had a run years ago. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, I was actually talking with Quentin Loder about you guys last week on the oh, podcast. Oh, right, that's where I met Quentin first at Second City, New York. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you were there a little bit longer than him, right? 
I think so. I think he was two semesters after me or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's where I met him. I'm curious about a couple of things uh, okay. about that. Um, first, uh, Martin DeMott, I'm always really curious about Mick Napier, uh, always goes out of his way to thank Martin DeMott first and foremost in anything that he ever does and uh-huh. calls him the greatest teacher of improvisation uh, uh, to ever walk the earth. Um, but you can't find a hell of a lot of material about him except for a handful of notes from students in Chicago. What, yeah, what was it? Right. What was he like? Um, he was very positive, very nice guy. I still use quotes when I would coach improv all the time. Uh, like, uh, nobody, oh gosh, I'm going to do it. You, you have permission to be here. This is like, you don't have to ask anybody. He was like this, uh, yin to the yang of Del Close. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I know they didn't get along very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, where Del was, kind of uh angry and opinionated uh martin was like this nurturing figure and um oh a good one he had was when you're doing a scene uh, it's like walking in gauhati when gauhati is this strange place you get off a plane or a boat and you're in gauhati uh you don't know the language or anything but you're there with your scene partner and because you're there together everything's going to be okay mm-hmm. and that was his big you know, depend on your scene partner and take care of each other in scenes. And, uh, that was a good thing. He's also got really goofy ones. Like intimacy is, uh, into me, you see, Mm -hmm. and, uh, the hokey pokey, uh, life is like the hokey pokey. You put your whole self in, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's all good stuff. Yeah. He really was, uh, when we were working on, on scenes for scripted material, terrific eye for like uh, sketches and things like that moves to make like really really sharp with comedic moves were you working on scenes that you guys were crafting yourselves you were improvising them and yeah the the way their program worked is you did four levels of improv and then five and six were be would be you're developing your one hour show Mm -hmm. so eight weeks each so you'd have 16 weeks to come up with an hour of comedy Um, and a lot of it was it starts improvised and then you keep repeating it and tweaking it. And, uh, I think like the last thing you do is write it down. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, um, the opposite of how a lot of places work, but you know, if you have a lot of time, it's a great way to work. Um, really comes out of the actors themselves. Um, and he, he passed away before the show and then, um, Jeff Richmond came in and took over, and Jeff Richmond is uh, married to Tina Fey mm-hmm. now. And Musical director yeah, on, uh, right. yeah, on 30 Rock. Very, very funny guy, too. Yeah. Super sharp. Yeah. Great, great comedic mind there. Yeah. So. How do you, because um, I, I, when I did the uh, the boat for Second City, mm-hmm. I did sort of a crash course and worked with a couple of directors on on already pre prepared material. It was basically yeah. learning by rote how to how to do the sketches and, and you know entertain. But I found the experience of working with a um, a Chicago director. Uh, a little bit different than anything I was used to working with like New York style coaches or, or even directors yeah. for other shows. There, there's a different kind of precision and, and a different kind of emphasis and, and a little bit more of a focus on the acting of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and what was your experience mounting the show with those guys? Cause you worked with two arguably the best 
teachers or directors in, in the last like 25 years of comedy? It, it was good. We never got to do like a run of the show anywhere. Yeah. Uh, we wound up renting space ourselves in uh, Times Square and doing a lot of those sketches as the orphans. Uh-huh. Which um, space was that? Um, above Club Mania? Is that the place? Yeah, you know, former uh, strip club yeah. turned, uh, Giuliani turned into yes. a... <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah. They had a giant disco ball. Yes. I remember that. That's after, above Kleptomania. It was above... And then after that, yeah. it was the Sage Theater, and then I would yep. rent it out uh, to put up uh, Boss Present shows in the Sage and, Theater. And the great pl- thing about that place was, uh, you know, we didn't have Facebook yet, but you could fly outside and yeah. fill the theater. If yeah. you just went out half hour before your show... All, so many tourists walk through there looking for something to do. You could take $5 from them, and, and they'd come watch the show, and you could fill the house. Yeah. Different people every night. Yeah. So that was good. That's cool. Yeah. So we would do, uh, like, I think it was 45 minutes of sketches and then a half-hour improv thing. Mm-hmm. Long form, or, or you take different suggestions? Um, we did, yeah, we did long form. Yeah, we were doing organic long form at the second half, which yeah. is weird. But it's what we were into yeah. at the time. Because we were all, like, Burn Manhattan was our, um, uh, that was a great group. I mean, that was my legendary group that, uh, you know, I really looked up to. And uh, I think two of the guys from Burn Manhattan uh, became longtime Johnny Lunchpail directors mm-hmm. when we were doing Johnny Lunchpail. And they came from, they came out of Chicago. They were a bunch of Second City guys. And they were directed by Shira Piven. Mm-hmm. And um, they do this great organic, I don't know how nerdy you want to get into the improv stuff. Pretty nerdy. Okay. They do this uh, organic transformational improv, which is always, always being in the moment. Um, no, like preconceived structure like uh, the herald mm-hmm. like you never have to think about what beat you're in mm-hmm. because you're always engaged in the moment and moving through these transformations with the other people in the group and the idea being you're all on the same page and it's very physical there's a lot of movement and um muscle memory so your callbacks are organic when you find yourself in the same situation physically a mm-hmm. lot of the time um and they had these uniforms, they had black suits and ties, and they had this cool music they came out to. Um, yeah, it was really great. Sometimes, uh, sometimes live music with them mm-hmm. also. And uh, I really loved the whole theatrical presentation. We all did. So um, they were a unique thing. And most of them are in the group Centralia now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if they're still... If they've done a show lately, but, um, you know, if you haven't seen Centralia, whenever they do a show, you guys should go see that. And you guys in, uh, Johnny Lunchpail borrowed a lot of that, a lot of that style. You had, uh, yeah, we, uniforms for the group and, right. and uh, a very theatrical presentation, yeah. totally organic. Did you have a form that you were, that you were kind of, uh, we toyed around? with different openings. Uh, a way to generate material because mm-hmm. otherwise it feels like when you're starting from zero all the time, it takes a while. It's, yeah. uh, sometimes we would have, a, uh, we would open in a fake garage and just have a conversation about something that happened to somebody mm-hmm. and that would start it. And then for a while we would walk out into the audience and find something or the new venue we were in even, you know, 
just to get going on and really use the stuff that's in the space we're performing in. Can you give me an example? Anything that comes to mind? Um, oh, gosh, if anybody had left a ladder, that ladder would be unfolded and on the stage and yeah. somebody would be climbing up it at some point, and then you get levels of, uh, uh, you know, you could do a balcony scene or something like that. Or I think we did a we did a show at, I think it was Louisville Improv Fest, and there was a mop, and it became Samson's hair, mm-hmm. and he had this mop this dirty, filthy mop on somebody's head with the stringy, wet strands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Samson and, you know, this romantic scene with Delilah and then she cuts his hair off and, you know, just using each other's bodies as uh, props too. Like if somebody's in a cave, you use your arms as vines that the other, like the whole thing is you want to be able to tell a narrative kind of thing and you can, there are no rules. You can do it any way you want. So you can have, use your fingers as tiny people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're addressing to a crowd and we love doing stuff like that. How are you guys rehearsing that stuff? Um, we would, oh boy, we would do a physical warm up, like real, like downward dog stuff <laughs> for a while. Yeah. And, um, we did a, a lot of, um, Viewpoints. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard of you? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So viewpoints is this. I think it came out of modern dance, mm-hmm. right? And Anne Bogart, I think, is a big influence on the use in the theater. Yeah. And she's got a great blog. If you Google that. Um. So we would do these viewpoints exercises quite a bit, and then the rest of it was really the uh, Spolin book improvisation for the theater, doing that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you get it kind of ingrained in your body and uh, um, the idea being then you can forget it and live in the moment yeah. on stage. Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, Spolin? Um, so I've never, I've read her book a few times and uh, and I've been arrogant enough to run a couple of workshops where I've taught my idea, whatever <laughs> the hell I was reading. But I think it's hard to to imagine if you see somebody doing, there's like videos online of people doing bad Spolin games yeah. and it just seems like the worst thing ever. But then I've also been told that if you have a really good teacher who really understands the games, it can be this this kind of revelatory thing. And, and, and I know Martin DeMott really really uh, uh, embrace them as being the kind yeah. of key to everything. So, so how do they, how exactly do you rehearse bowling games? They're very transformational. They're very physical. They're very, uh, yeah. they're very well, they're, space they're like oriented. a spacewalk. Like, you know, uh, you know, each exercise teaches you a different principle of things in improv, like the spacewalk of every, somebody walks into a space and uh, interacts with an imaginary object, puts it down and leaves. Then the next person has to go honor that, previous object and then add a new one mm-hmm. till you've got this full environment of stuff that is hopefully been filled out by everybody's input. And I think I, you know, I, one of the things Martin said was that, uh, you know, Stanislavski gave the actor his, his own experiences to draw from and Spolin gave, uh, the actors each other to draw from. Mm-hmm. So you could use the other person to uh, to help you with your acting. That's interesting. Yeah. Something we always said. Mm-hmm. But but again, when you're uh, a young improv kid, uh, you know, I don't necessarily know what I was doing. Okay, I'll pretend to eat something. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you 
oh, I'm really learning object work. Like, they really want to see you lift the spoon. How heavy is the spoon? What's it look like? And that's all good stuff. And I think um, when I watch improv, sometimes I go, ah, you're you're burning your steps. It's like, it's interesting to see you try to open that door right. and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, people want to rush through it sometimes. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it, burning your steps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you guys are rehearsing using Spolin and, and using viewpoints, so viewpoints, uh, you're, you're, it's a language to describe movement on stage. And so, you yeah, it's a way stuff. to improvise, um, a good stage picture, I think. Yeah. Is the best way. Like, have levels, have somebody up high, low, mm-hmm. somebody. Be aware of things like rhythm of movement across the ensemble and be yeah. aware of use of and again, I'm architecture the, and, and lights and all that. And you do the exercises, and I don't know what it's teaching me, but eventually it kind of makes sense and it becomes natural. To, yeah. You naturally counter somebody's move yeah. when they take center or something like that. So, what does it look like? Are you doing like two or three hours of kind of abstract rehearsal together? Is it uh, oh, lots of moving together? Because there were only ensemble? four of us, I think we went to two hours because it, it, it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, and you're always on... Oh, that's the other thing is you're not standing on the sidelines. You're, you're always engaged somehow. Yeah. You're, um, you're either a piece of furniture or you're, you're filling out... This, you're helping fill out the other person's scene somehow. And even if it's just hiding really small and not being visible. You're still engaged because you have to be ready. They might address you at any point. Have you met my owl? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I'm an owl now. That kind of thing. But, um, what was the experience for you doing those shows? Um, it, it, you know, it was, it was great. I, it was, uh, people are, I don't know I want to say it. I think people don't appreciate when you've done something that you've worked on yourself and you're in control of it and you find success through it and people respect it. Um, Maybe you don't realize it while it's happening, but that's, I found that to be a more valuable experience than being on a house team somewhere Mm -hmm. because it was ours. Mm -hmm. We could decide where we went and we weren't worried. When I was, uh, I've been on house teams and, and, um, a lot of the times you're driven by fear of doing it wrong Mm -hmm. and getting cut or getting the team cut or something like that. Mm -hmm. And when you have your own thing, that's, you don't worry about that and you have a freedom to do what you want and a freedom to fail horrible. Like I've done some horrible shows, but uh, I've also done the best improv shows I've ever done with with Johnny Lunchpail, those guys. And I think I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah, it um, it's almost like if you don't value the failures, and if you don't if you don't make a value and make a virtue out of giving yourself permission to to fail big time, um, you also don't get the compensation of the really memorable stuff of of the stuff where you go beyond what you think of your limits as being. You know, if you're playing yeah. it to kind of middle of the road and trying to trying to improvise right, uh, um, you can develop a pretty good uh, technique and you can de- yeah. be pretty reliable, but you, you always kind of stay in that middle of the road thing. It's really hard to push yourself into into right. the really exciting places because now failure isn't part of your yeah. vocabulary together. It doesn't matter. 
doesn't yeah. matter. If, you know. Yeah. That's a weird thing about the house team system in general is, is you kind of can't fail or you're given, you know, you get three strikes basically. And probably if you really want to succeed as, as a group and develop a strong group identity, you need a lot more than three strikes. That's my guess. Yeah, I think so too. And you got to, um, I think Johnny Lunchpail only had four people in it. And I think having a small, tight-knit group where everybody, you know, we would compete to do more for each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a great energy to have. Like, um, it's not like, oh, I've shown up because it's our slot. Right. It's it's really like, I want to do more, you know. Yeah. Can you give me an example of a way that you guys would compete to do more for each other? Because that's just like that's the most beautiful approach. Hey, I, I just booked us our, our hostel room in Chicago yeah. for us. Okay. Now we're committed. Like I had a car to drive us to one of the years we were at Chicago improv fest and I brought the deed with me cause the car was old mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, it overheated on the way and I pulled out the deed. I'm like, we'll just sell it. We'll just sell it right now. Wow. We'll junk it. Uh, but we, the Made guy, it. Will Cole was driving it in second gear for a good hour and uh, <laughs> didn't realize it. So, of course, it overheated. But, uh, um, so so that, that extends outside outside the stage. That extends until your relationship oh, with each oh, yeah. other. You, you all, become like war buddies. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, we'd, uh, oh, we'd go to do shows in Chicago and uh, we'd stay at this hostel. And um, we'd always get the room for four with these four bunk beds. Yeah. So it's like a barracks. Yeah. Totally. And we wore the uniform, you know, we had these blue dicky shirts and pants we would wear all the time. So it really was, you know, people called us the Johnnies all the time. Yeah. Like that. I remember I was talking about this. I'm pretty sure Quentin and I talked about this in the last podcast. Um, but I remember seeing you guys perform, uh, and you guys uh, kind of get, played for like five or ten minutes and then uh, sort of like acknowledged that the show wasn't going very well and just restarted the show yeah. ten minutes in. It was a better show after we were started. It was a much better show. <laughs> and 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 a super ballsy thing to do. I'd never seen anybody You can't do, do that, that on Herald Night. No. They don't let you. <laughs> no. Uh, um, I, like, and I remember like my takeaway from that w- was... I kind of didn't realize how much of a box I've kind of put my own thinking about performing into and and suddenly have a moment like that where you realize that like, Oh, you could, you can use the whole event of the evening as your material to improvise. You own it. You know, you can talk to the audience at some point. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so you go from that and training at second city and doing Johnny lunch pail and booking your own shows to eventually ending up, uh, going through UCB's training program. Yeah. I went through it at the same time. Uh, and I did, uh, Harold night yeah. for about five years. I'm pretty sure you, you were performing at the first Harold night that I saw with gigawatt. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was the. It had been called my kick-ass van, but we'd had such a uh, turnover of staff yeah. that uh, we changed the name to Gigawatt. Yep. What was it? 
what was the contrast between the Second City approach to improvising and the UCB approach? Also, this is UCB long before uh, yeah, this uh, the is current old time yeah. UCB. Uh, back on uh, the again another former strip club. Giuliani <laughs> <laughs> so, really paved the way, man. He, <laughs> yeah, he, he yeah. did. He, he did a lot for comedy that people don't realize. I think. Uh, uh, yeah, it was old. It was. Uh, very small place um, and very cool to be at. It still is a cool place. I don't want to slam on UCB or anything. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, um, much smaller enterprise at yes. that point, though. Yeah, very small. And I think I did a, uh, the first time I performed there, I got in some. There was a group called Respecto Montalban, which was a big group back in the day. Mm-hmm. And um, they hosted a survivor like show where they would. Uh, you would do scenes and they would eliminate a player and like the audience would vote a person off out of the ensemble. It's uh-huh. <laughs> <just> horrifying. <laughs> Talk about fear of failure. But, uh, I did one of those once uh, and then, uh, I signed up for classes there also because actually, uh, Martin recommended it. Um, when the, uh, you know, after what happens after second city, we go through all the levels what do we do? And he mm. said, well, go go to UCB. They're the only ones doing this mm. right now in New York. And it was true because the rest was a lot of, you know, um, uh, what, there was Chicago City Limits, mm-hmm. I think, at the time. And I think National Comedy Theater. Yeah. That's, that's probably about it. Gotham City Improv, I guess, was operating. Yeah. But all similar short form. Nobody was doing long form except for UCB and uh, Burn Manhattan, mm-hmm. actually. And I had some conflicts, I think, uh, in style. Um, you know, UCB's really got their act together with the game of the scene stuff and their manual. Now, it didn't really exist back then, and we were using truth and comedy mm-hmm. as kind of a Bible. Um, but, you know, we also had all this organic Spolin training, too, which didn't necessarily... It's like trying to arrive at the same end goal through a couple different paths. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is the same, but some of it is, uh, you know, as far as the beats, the Herald and stuff, Spolin doesn't cover that at all. Yeah. So you just, we'd naturally want to play out a story or something like that. And I think uh, my first teacher was Kevin Mullaney, who's still a, a friend of mine. In fact, we wound up on the same team for for a while. But, he was uh, on Gigawatt for a little yeah, bit, Oh, yeah, he? yeah. Well, yeah, that was the pattern. It's like... Uh, We'd have a coach for a while, and then... Uh, and they joined the team. Then they joined the team, <laughs> yeah. I think it happened three, four people in a row. Wow. And, uh, we became Arsenal after that. Yeah, yeah. It was a big team. Um, but he was like, oh, don't play story. Don't play story. I'm like, well, it's the second beat, though. Aren't we supposed to continue the story? And it's like, nope, nope. And that's where Game of the Scene stuff first came up. So I want to get nerdy about this um, because I, when I'm teaching Harold, um, I think I teach more of a story approach to second beats. I, I teach yeah. a lot of kind of pick up where you left off and, and go further and, and, you know, don't worry too much about, about uh, um, uh, really making the game of the scene pop, worry about yeah. sticking well, to, it makes sense to characters. Me. Yeah, to me too. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, I'm all for a broader interpretation of game yeah. I think than a lot of people have yeah and I think it was something that I I struggled with more you know I didn't struggle that bad but it was a 
oh, second beats in the White House, third beats on the moon kind of thing. And that was uh, even at that at that stage of the game. So when you're talking about game in the scene, you're talking really about taking things analogously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, extrapolating yeah. and putting into a new context. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but didn't, didn't like, um, I mean, the old time dash was that, right? I mean, it was not extrapolation. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah, you're just moving forward or backward in time yeah. with the same people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think analogous games were an invention of the family and then transplanted uh, into yeah. UCB and became the kind of dominant philosophy. Yep. Which my take on it has always been uh, that there are times where that's the funniest, most appropriate thing to do. Yeah. And then there are times where you're just making it needlessly complicated. Yeah. You already have great characters. You put all this work into them. You might as well kind of see them through. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think... I think the people that were able to uh, explain it best to me, uh, Matt Besser would come in and, and visit the Herald teams whenever he was in town and mm-hmm. we'd all gather and he, you know, he's pretty sharp with his criticism sometimes, but, uh, he was able to articulate game stuff very well. And, uh, we had Miles Stroth coached one of my teams. Maybe it was gigawatt for a while because mm-hmm. he was in town doing a play or something. And he, he's got a great mind for that analytical mind of the game of the scene and what moves. Like, he'd, he could really analyze the moves made and, and relay them back to you and show you other options you could have done and stuff like that. Yeah. But he was in the family. Yes. So yeah. uh, he's really good at that, too. Yeah. So let's talk about the difference in your mind between following the story, following the game, and being plotty. That's a big thing that comes up whenever people talk about story. Story and plot tend to get kind of conflated with each other. And plot is always round on as kind of gumming up the works. And story is something that a lot of people don't really talk too much about. That seems to be kind of more the domain of like Canadian and British improvisers with narrative yeah. theater. And then game is a very... And in New Brazil, York. too. When and, I was done in Brazil, it was all about creating story yeah. also. And uh, I think it's... In the, in the Herald, I think you want to do something that other... They don't want unexpected from you. They want to be able to replicate the pattern. So if you break the pattern and change your character, or your character gets his wish granted, mm-hmm. they kind of don't know what to do for you anymore. Mm-hmm. But with a game, they can play a game, and it's predictable, and they can come in and help you. It's easier for them to come in and help you, I think, mm-hmm. um, as far as story goes. Um, I mean, it's... Story doesn't work that way. Story is like, here's something unexpected. Oh, here's another unexpected thing. Oh, and now it's over. Kind of, I think it's a valid form to do on its own, but I think it's difficult to do a herald that way. Well, story, like reading through some of Keith Johnstone's books where he talks Uh about developing narrative, that seems as rigid to me as some of the more yeah. rigid approach to gameplay. It's very, very like formalized of this is exactly what you need and you need a twist here and you need a twist there and, and now mm-hmm. you're back to a plateau and now you got to change the balance and all that. Um, I, which I, I think I would probably find baffling in the moment or, or, yeah. or just ignore completely and just do my own thing, which I end up doing a lot. In yeah. How do you, how do you act in the moment when you're still trying to analyze the larger plot of the piece? Yeah. I, and I've always found that difficult. I think. Yeah. 
So, so what in your mind? What would be the difference between plot and story? It's kind of an arbitrary distinction, oh, but gosh. but why is one not great and one can be great? I'm, I'm putting those words into your mouth as if that's what you mean <laughs> to say. Are they are they that different? I guess. What would happen next? What would happen next mm-hmm. when you revisit? Mm-hmm. Right. And story would be the telling of a complete story with a beginning, middle, and end. Like mm-hmm. a character wants something that goes through some tribulations comes out the other side and has learned something new about himself or something mm-hmm. like that would be a story or something yeah like a plot would be a segment of a story or i guess i uh, um because you get that note of don't be that's that was too plotty that was a plotty move and and sometimes i find myself giving that note but in very specific situations and yeah. and almost always when people are trying to move the scene forward by pulling in unnecessary outside Information. They're inventing yeah. four new characters that you don't need. Yeah. All you need to do is tell this person that you love them. And instead, we're hearing about like Uncle Maury and, and oh, you know, yeah. you know introducing what I mean? like, new elements that you can't play out necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Stuff that we can't immediately see in front of our yeah. eyes and, and follow along with. Hell, guilty. I've done that yeah. <laughs> so many times. Yeah. And sometimes, like, you find yourself... That works in Johnny Lunchpail shows, because then you just go to that. And become those characters. Yeah, become those guys, and yeah. it's in the dream inside a mirror ball, and some kid shakes it up, and then it's inside his head. And yeah. Then you're in space. Did you guys so. Did you guys tend to get, like, psychedelic in those shows? And I don't mean with, yeah, with drug get, references, just in terms of the flow of a show. Sometimes. Because uh, sometimes you're doing something and you don't know why you're doing it. And I think the last show we did, we had a reunion show earlier this year. We all just, uh, we were, we used a narrative device of a, a, a planet Earth, you know, and pretended to be holding a globe and filling out this cosmos with things. And then we're all spinning in place like planets. And then it became, we were spinning spinning plates of pie at the TikTok diner mm-hmm. and we were each a different flavor of pie and we're all given our point of view at the TikTok diner so you have these in that sense it's surreal and melting into each other kind of thing but I don't uh, I don't like staying in that in the abstract too long because mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's boring mm-hmm. I think it's more interesting to use those transformational things to get to a new thing quickly and how quick can you guys all transform through something into something totally new mm-hmm. and start a new scene? And I think when you get fast at that, that makes really dynamic shows that people remember. If you spend too much time in the transitions, it ends up becoming a trap. You end up... Yeah, oh, yeah. You start, it puts it in your head horribly. Yeah. And those I've been in a circle transformation. You know those circle transformations? Oh, yeah. So people, um, you're supposed to be looking at each other and heightening things you see in other people. And it creates, um, you know, change that way. But invariably, somebody starts pounding the floor and everybody's pounding the floor and nobody's looking at each other. So you're pounding the floor for 10 minutes Mm -hmm. until the teacher has to stop it. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I think it's good to always be engaged in the other person and what they're doing. And then you can, like, you got to, you always got to be in the same place. And be there together. Sometimes when you pop it into another thing, people don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But if you go there together, they can fill it in quickly. And if you can all transform quickly together and be on the same page together, then you can uh, travel a lot of ground. Go to the moon, 
go to Stonehenge, be a bunch of chickens. That seems like a very Spolin thing. All transforming together, all yeah. all going from point A to point C together, and yeah. and all getting lost at point B to to arrive there. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. And this is not all. I mean, this is all just my opinion of how it works. Sure, how it works for me. Yeah, or how I imagine it anyway. I want to ask you a question. Having having done Harold Knight and and having performed uh, um, with sketch groups at the Magnet, and and you've logged a lot of time on stage. Your point of view about fear because i have i'm of mixed opinions on this and and Uh and kind of it depends on what mood you catch me in part of me very strongly believes that that you have to value fear and failure and and you can't be afraid of failure you have to own failure and and learn from it and and like you're very safe to fail and in fact you should fail multiple times it's the only way to get really strong yeah the other part of me can see the argument in uh, you get one strike exactly, <laughs> and and if you fail twice in a row, you're the, out of here. The, the improv committee is watching. <laughs> yeah, which is a shitty. I mean, obviously, it's a terrible state of mind yeah. to be in, and it's kind of counter to to some of the spirit of a lot of, a lot yeah, of the work. It's like being on a survivor improv team where they're eliminating a member yeah. that the audience doesn't like. Yeah. But uh, 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 the other side of that argument is you have to rise to the occasion and and you have to make yourself be tough enough to kind of be good on command. Mm -hmm. So, so. And don't, don't you find that the really talented people just don't care? Yeah. They don't care about the improv committee. They don't care about any of that. Yeah. And if you cut them, they're on a new thing the next day somewhere else. Yeah. They're, they're usually either very desirable people to have in your show. You just mm-hmm. feel very, very confident in them yeah. or, or they're really good self-starters and, and are creating their own opportunities and doing their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which do you operate better in one of those two camps or do you oscillate between the two of them or do you just not give a shit about them? I think I, I give much less of a shit about it than I did years ago. I remember being very frightened on Harold Knight of doing it wrong and getting the team cut. And um, sometimes you just freeze up. And sometimes there's too many people on the teams to to get in. You know, like people want to be on stage more so they get seen. Like if you didn't get out for a scene, what's wrong with you? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Sometimes it was a, it created a competitive situation. And, uh, I think with the, uh, you know, I work with the sketch teams here and I'm, when people start getting hung up on what their time slot is or who's opening for whom, like who's the best team. And it's like, you guys aren't competing with each other here. You know, you're competing with everybody else everywhere mm-hmm. and looking good here at the magnet stage makes us all look good so mm-hmm. let's all root for each other kind of thing yeah uh, um let's talk about directing sketch for a little bit because you have okay. lots of experience so you you do you still love improvising i still do i miss it a lot yeah uh but i'm on a sketch team and i direct another sketch team and i'm having trouble finding the time yeah the bandwidth to do it yeah but, you're yeah. you're on you perform with one to go Yes. And you're directing, uh, is it action? No, adults. Adults. They're called. Adults. Uh, and they're very good. They're a new team yeah. this past season. Um, so for people who don't know the schedule, what does your weekly schedule look like now? 
Well, let's see. Uh, Tuesday nights is Wendigo rehearsals um, or writer meetings. Uh, Thursday nights are adults rehearsals and writer meetings. And Sunday, two out of three Sundays, it's all day in the th- uh, theater, teching the show, rehearsing the show, and putting the show up. We do a lot of work on Sunday, hmm. uh, the last day of putting it up. And usually on a show week, which would be two out of those three weeks, there's an extra rehearsal on Wednesday or Monday for one of the two groups I'm affiliated with. Um, and it's it's one of those, it's gratifying though, you know, it's that good work, that honest work that mm-hmm. you hate while you're doing it sometimes, but then at the end, it, it's, it is gratifying, really gratifying because it, it's a permanent where, it, where improv is ephemeral and disappears, you know. People are building portfolios of written work and getting better at it and uh, hopefully taking these writing habits um, and doing something else with it, you know, beyond a house team system. Mm-hmm. As a director, uh, um, what are great, like, what do you like to see in people who are, who are working on, on teams that you're managing? What are great writing habits? What, what, what makes a great sketch team? What makes a great individual in a sketch team? What, what's ideal behavior in your experience? I think, um, for writing, I think getting in a habit of writing more than just the day a a script is due, uh, and having multiple scripts you could work on at any time. Like having a big folder of stuff that isn't done yet that you could, oh, I'm going to work on this, I'm going to work on this. And the people who have been really successful have have scheduled everyday writing time mm-hmm. and every day they're writing something. And that way they can pick their own best stuff and bring it in to be done as opposed to somebody bringing in and help me fix this. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I brought in all these things or I have all these things. I'm going to bring in these two that are the most promising. I think that works well for people. And I think acting wise, you know, the, the, the rehearsal schedule is so compressed. You have to do a new show every three weeks. I think, um, actors just making big choices at the outset. You know, I don't, uh, I was just talking about this with somebody. It's like, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to make a choice and then I can, can, can yes, know it or more of that or mm-hmm. less of that or try this as opposed to starting at zero. You know what I'm I saying? I sure do. Yeah. 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 I think that's great. And a lot of it, these are big ensembles. So much of it is just show up on time, know your lines, respect each other. It's a long, like long day. Be nice to each other. Be cool. Um, pay your dues, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, don't make other people pay money so for you to perform. All the unsexy stuff that ends up yeah, making you all that stuff. Oh, and that goes back to giving more of yourself yeah. to your your group. Take care of stuff for people. Yeah, you know, look out for them. Yeah, I um, when I was managing Megawatt, the number one thing I would say to everybody, and it was probably the number one thing that people completely ignored and didn't give a shit about, was just be on time for things. And if you're yeah. not going to be on time, give plenty of heads up to everybody. Plenty of notice. And it's yes. amazing the difference over time in the way that people treat you if you just respect that one idea. Yeah. Even if you come in and your comedy is crap. 
Yeah. And like everybody's tired. Yeah. <laughs> We're all tired. Yeah. So we all have day jobs yeah. or whatever. Maybe, maybe you don't, <laughs> maybe that's why you can't pay your dues, but, <laughs> yeah. but that kind of stuff. And, uh, it reminds me, I talked about Kevin Mullaney earlier. I think when, it, when I first got on a Herald team, uh, he had a, a thing, uh, don't sleep with another, don't sleep with a number, another member of your team. But if you do sleep with another member of your team, don't sleep with a second member of your team. <laughs> it seems like a joke, but that's very good advice <laughs> for everybody listening. It's very good. Because there are a lot of couples that have met on house teams yeah. places and uh, gotten married. So, And there are a shit ton yeah, more that are broken up happens. on house teams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shit ton right. more. Yeah. That's right. So, um, here's a super obnoxious question, but I, I have to ask it. Uh, um, what's a part of the reason why improvisers turned writers, I think, wait till the very last minute to turn anything in is, is just because you, you're, you're in the habit of, of, uh, bringing out your material the moment of yeah and so the deadline just kind of forces you to have to do something so so deadlines to, are good i like them they're great yeah. so developing a discipline to give yourself the deadline i think it, it, for me and i'm talking personally for me it's a super scary thing to take the note to just write for no reason just because set aside yeah. an hour to just write so yeah. so if you were to give me a little bit more direction on that let's say i were a novice on your team and and you had to kind of like whip me into shape and I need more direction than just write every day something. What direction would you give me to start? Well, focusing? do you keep a list like a notebook of funny things or things you hear or anything like that? Yeah, if I hear something interesting on the street, I'll write it down, or or I write down uh, ideas for stories. Sometimes or a premise or something like this. So it depends. It, only when I'm thinking about having to do it, or or what. I, recently, I have been making lots of lists of just like. 10 funny names in under 30 seconds uh-huh. or 10, 10 movie titles to movies that I wouldn't want to see in, in 30 seconds. There are, um, there are great things you can do. And this is kind of stuff I like to read about all the time, how people come up with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the instructors at second city taught a, a writing one class. I think I took, uh, she, um, he you come up with a list of, oh, she had a list of triggers, triggers they were called, and uh, the color yellow. So think of, you know, write down a small idea about all these trigger words, the color yellow, the number 42, these seemingly random words. Mm -hmm. So write a line of dialogue that involves that or write uh, a point of view or a thing about it, just a sentence. So you got like 30 of them and then read the whole list and go, well, these five are kind of interesting. I can imagine this guy saying that. And then you write a longer, longer piece of this guy talking about this yellow cab he missed or something like that. Mm. Then you can expand that out into character. But it was, I, I think it was the only writing class I've ever taken that taught you how to generate ideas through writing mm-hmm. as opposed to, and you're not sitting down at that point to come up with a sketch. It's a different, day's work it's like i'm going to spend two hours here i'm going to come up with these 30 things and then when you're the next day hopefully all that stuff's running in your head the next day you can pick something out of there and go i'm going to write a monologue based on this sentence Mm -hmm. i can imagine a guy saying that so i'm going to imagine this guy where he is and what he's saying and then um, fill that out but you know it is a lot of you throw out a lot of it Mm -hmm. but it does generate ideas for you 
And also, you know, those, they sell these story cube kind of things. Mm-hmm. You can take, oh, it's a ninja and he's in a laundromat or something. Okay, it's ninja laundromat. Do you, you find know? that stuff helpful? Like smashing? Sometimes, it yeah. sure. Yeah. It, but it's just one tool. It's not like how to write everything. Um, I write stories for um, for the truth. Yes. And uh, um, I have this like terrifying period whenever I get a story done and up. I then have to start the next story and I can't remember for the life of me how the hell I wrote the last one. I don't remember where they, because it goes through so much transformation from start to finish yeah. that by the time you get to the end product, you don't remember yeah. what your stroke of and, inspiration and was. And while you're writing it too, yeah. while you're writing it, you go, Oh no, this is, no, this is going a total different direction. Mm-hmm. Oh Absolutely. no, I see what it's about now. And yeah. it's like, I used to make the mistake of, Oh, I got to think the whole sketch in my head before I write it down. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, just get it. You, you know, another trick is to, if you use, everybody should use screenwriting software of some kind, I think. And uh, if you're on a team I direct, I'm always like, get your name on top, put the date, get the version name, get the uh, the this top block of the sketch where the pocket, hmm. what's, who's in it, where we are, there are two people, what are their names, get it down. And getting that, once you have that down, it's like, oh, the rest is easy now. Mm-hmm. You just have to to an improv yes and game through mm-hmm. the thing maybe mm-hmm. maybe it's eight pages long and then you throw out six pages because you found the two pages that are working for you mm-hmm. and you go back to that but you're not again it's not fear you have to not be afraid to throw stuff out you can still save a version of it just in case if yeah. you're worried about it but what it's like an iceberg you know the final sketch is the above the water part but you've done all this underwater work mm-hmm. To get it there, I think. Yeah, you, yeah. The result of anything really good is is loads and loads of work that nobody sees. Yeah, and then you just execute it as if. Yeah, and people, oh, it's genius! Yeah. How'd you just thought of that? Yeah. What are the pros and cons? Having done both the Second City approach to putting up a review, uh-huh. and and done uh, um, the more UCB magnet approach of writing based on premises yeah. or assignments. What are the, what are the pros and cons of both of those approaches? Um, the con to the, uh, uh, the UCB magnet system of, of everybody's separate writing separately by themselves and then bringing it in and taking notes on it for maybe 10 minutes a week, going back, coming back the next week for another 10 minutes, hopefully fixing it. Whereas Second City, hopefully, you know, if you're employed by Second City, which would be great, like you're working these sketches on their feet. You work for three hours, get a sketch done. Hey, that sketch is done. Let's work on another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but writing it down last, you know, you're working with the ensemble the whole time and you're getting the, you're getting everybody else to, to work on it. I mean, they're real group work stuff, you know, because usually those start as improv scenes. So the group mind is coming up with these sketches and it's just being refined. And to even put an author on some of them is kind of, well, everybody was in this working on it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the facts and the economics are nobody has these days to work on it. So yeah. you've got to do it by yourself and bring it back. And, you know, maybe you find somebody you trust you can work with and you could collaborate and write together. I mean, I like that. I find that gratifying. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to, schedules are hard. 
Oh yeah, get everybody together. It's such a funky lifestyle. Be- it is. Be- be- there, there's so few people who are actually making a serious living as comedians, pure and simple. Yeah. So all the rest of us, and so many well qualified people who are not tons. Yeah, tons. Uh, um, so you end up living this kind of like weird hodgepodge lifestyle of of there's not exactly like you, you, things are orderly for a chunk of time and then the order gets completely upended as you take on this next project. Yeah. And sure. so finding two people or three people or eight people to ever get together and work on a project is like a small miracle. Yeah. And finding those people that you work well with, it's like, hang on to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, seriously, hang yeah. on to those people. Have you, uh, um, are there collaborators that you've kind of accrued over the years of people that are like your reliable go-to partners? Well, the Johnny Launchfeld guys, of yeah. course. I'll put them in anything. Uh, I think Kate Emsweiler's great. Yeah. She's on Wendigo. And we've been on a couple of teams together. You know, I could work with her forever. I think she's really talented. Yeah. Um, and there, there are people that just have good energy, too, that you want to be with. Like, And there are a lot of people like that, too, mm-hmm. around. Um, I think you want to work with people that make you feel good, make you feel good about yourself and kind of, uh, alleviate your fears a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like you trust them to do a good job with their stuff. Yeah. And they trust you. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, um, keeping, this is like, um, this is probably like probably too nebulous, but, but keeping your focus on what you want to be doing uh-huh. when you don't have like a long-term plan, when you're not, not the kind of person who, who kind of has like mapped out your strategy for, for, you know, the, like the I should five have years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, I find myself thinking that all the time and, and, yeah. but, and, and, and there is something I think healthy to thinking about it. It's good to have a wake up call periodically and be like, okay, uh-huh. feet to the fire. You got to focus here. But then there's also a trap where, where you can start like it's not good to look back and be like, I should have done this when I was 22. It's like, well, I'm not 22. Yeah. That's too who bad. knows? It, it, what? Boy, what would have been great to be in Chicago in the nineties. Totally. <laughs> totally. And you just got to end up working with what you have in front of you and, yeah. and, and not fall into the, and thing like of, sometimes it's over and you realize, Hey, I was part of something. Yeah. I didn't realize it yeah. at the time and maybe didn't appreciate it at the time. But, yeah. Uh, early UCB is one of those things. It's like, Wow, all these people are famous now. Yeah. It's like, I guess that would be Chicago in the 90s. Sure. Yeah. um, Early 90s. Um, But yeah, I think uh, if you can get goofy about it, appreciate the people you have who are helping you. Yeah. Get there. Do the stuff you want to be doing. Is fame uh, in your mind? Fame? No, not anymore. Yeah. No, more like respect of peers and just to keep being able to do it Mm -hmm. for as long as I can, Mm -hmm. I think. Has your sense of humor changed since you've been honing it? I think so. I'm a lot more uh, enlightened, I think. How so? Diversity stuff, Uh stuff that was an easy joke, Uh even five years ago or something like that. I don't go there. Yeah. I don't even like... uh, even if the joke is sound and stuff, I don't even... Oh, punching down. I don't like to punch down. Mm-hmm. At all. That's a big thing if I'm directing. 
your group and you're making fun of a homeless person or something like mm-hmm. that. I, I don't want that. I don't want that in my show. Even if it's really funny, even if it kills, oh yeah, you, even you if it's it really funny, I'd, I'd still try to twist it so it's almost as funny, but it's not. Yeah, you know. Yeah, good for you. That like yeah, there there's a lot to be said for building up integrity in that way. And there's a challenge like in protecting material that's punching down like i saw a, a video of a review that mick napier directed at second city uh-huh i'm gonna totally botch it in describing it but but it was shortly after um uh christopher reeve had had his accident yeah and uh the review was uh um kevin dorf was playing brainiac and he was doing it in a real super friends yeah. voice you know yeah. that like real thing and Rich Tellerico came out as Superman, and he came out in a wheelchair as Superman, and he got this huge groan from the audience, yeah. and it and it made you really uncomfortable, and 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 like your immediate thing is like that's in really shitty taste, but then he sang this heartfelt song about not letting his disability get him down, and don't judge a book by its cover, and it was like mm-hmm. this really really beautiful thing that won the audience over, and then at the very end of it, he like. Uh, uh, rescued Lois from Brainiac or whatever, and then left and then came back on as Clark Kent rolling uh, uh, into it with, uh, you know, like the usual yeah. button of like, what, what did I miss going on? And it was such a well done thing because it, it, it protected what otherwise would have been a really tasteless joke yeah. and managed to find a way to bring managed intelligence to and sensitivity to it and, and still kind of get away with it. You know, uh, we, I'll talk about adults had one with daredevil. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Daredevil. It's his first. Um, he hears a cry for help, and he's Matt Murdock, who is blind, and he's got his uh, stick. And oh, oh my gosh! I'm, I'm, uh, this is my chance to be Daredevil and work this mission. And I think the original draft uh, had him just kind of fumbling all over the place trying to get his costume on, and we're like, you know, there's something to this, but that's that's pretty. I don't want to put that on stage because mm-hmm. it's wrong. And we found a way to get a uh, Dennis Pacheco comes in as a good Samaritan trying to help Daredevil. And the good Samaritan becomes this horrible nuisance to the scene. Uh-huh. And eventually Daredevil punches him and knocks him out. So, um, you know, there's a way to, to, to turn this stuff around. And I want to turn as much of it around. It's like, I don't even like playing a race, you know, a character who says a racist thing. Yeah. I'm uncomfortable with it and I'd rather not do it. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to have a really good reason. And in almost every situation, uh, the reason's not good enough to, you know what I mean? Like you could always make the argument of like representing this point of view or, or playing this character to the best of your, whatever right there's integrity to it but it's just like ugh. but is the the original choice a good choice i mean you know what i mean like and more often than not you kind of find like eh, it wasn't really there either there's like a shock value to it or 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 something where yeah i hate shock value because there's nothing shocking anymore yeah it's all done yeah we're in like an interesting world right now where comedy's become a really viable career path for many people and it's become a really sexy cool awesome thing to do but we also live in a world where everything around us is so unbelievably fucking insane and just getting crazier and crazier every day that there's almost like a way to keep up with your comedy is you got to be like more grounded in a way or you know what i mean like it, it, they're they're 
culture at large is no longer the straight man against which we can play our comedy. No, I mean, look at the, look at the GOP right now. It's, yeah. <laughs> There's like almost a way where like playing comedy is like a way of kind of keeping yourself sane in the middle of it. Trying to find like a clear, logical, rational point of view in the middle of insanity. Yeah, and that's what people, you know, you go on Facebook or whatever and it's always some comedy bit people are laughing at. Yeah. And sharing. Yeah. I want to plug really quick while there's an ambulance going on outside. Uh, uh, I hope they're okay. I hope they're okay, too. I hope so. Okay. Uh, uh, So there's a best of sketch going on on Sunday, December 13th. Yeah, the 13th. We've got all six sketch teams going up doing their best of material of this whole season, I think since September. Mm -hmm. Um, Six o'clock, Stockton and when to go and 7.30 it's the executives and student council and then 10 o'clock 9 o'clock 9 o'clock you've got uh, adults and Dinosaur Jones okay. and uh, the, you know the sketch system changed uh, this past season and it's we've divided acting roles and writer roles and uh, I think it's really I think the past two years or so it's really uh, elevated itself the whole program yeah and we've got a lot of good talented people working on it now and it's an exciting time because uh we're trying out this new system and you know there are little bumps along the way and it's a lot of people to organize but uh you know it's worth it when you put the show up a lot of people going to festivals um i think adults and wendigo and dinosaur jones are all in chicago first week of january doing their uh sketch festival in chicago um I think Stockton is doing San Francisco Sketchfest this year, too. Um, uh, it's big time. It goes back to what you were saying before about ownership, too, of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a product that you've created and it's your baby. Yeah. And, and also, like, getting out of just the theater and reaching out to, like, the broader comedy community, the broader entertainment community at large, putting yeah. your work out there for other people to see is so important. Right. And you want, you know... As as somebody works at the Magnet, uh, you want people to think of the Magnet as a place to come to work on sketch comedy. Yeah, you know, please come check out their shows December thirteenth, yeah, seven thirty and nine p.m. Super quick before before we end the conversation. Uh, uh, you taught in Brazil. Oh yeah, yeah. I taught. Uh, I've been to Brazil a few times, and I taught. Um, uh, my first trip, I met a bunch of improvisers down there, and. Um, uh, I think I forgot whether it's second trip, third trip. Uh, but it was like, well, I'm down there uh, for a week. Why don't you teach a, a, a workshop? And I did. And then I think the last time I was there, uh, I was there for a month. And uh, I did, I think, two weeks of Harold. Uh, hmm. And they're mostly, they know Keith Johnstone stuff mm-hmm. mostly down there. That's, and something called Match Improv. Uh, which is a similar like franchise thing, so it was new and it was a uh, new vocabulary and uh, Sena, game of the scene mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it, that was kind of a new concept. And I brought the books, Truth and Comedy, down and met some great people. There are a couple in Rio de Janeiro. I mean, there are a couple of great places, uh, Teatro Contemporaneo uh, in that's in Botafogo and. Uh, uh, Teatro Donada, Theater from Nothing. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're great. 
and they're all, you know, they're all serious actors. Too. Yeah. They're all like hardcore, classically trained kind of people who do commercials and movies and things like that. And they also love to do improv and they put on a really theatrical show too. And, uh, uh, I feel great to have made that connection down there and I still talk to them on Facebook and yeah. stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Oh, rock and roll. Rob Webber, it's been a pleasure. Thank you okay. for talking. Sir. Thank you, Lewis. And thank you guys for listening. Please come out and see uh, uh, Rob perform. And also don't forget about that Best of Sketch Sunday, December 13th, 6, 7.30 and 9 p.m. This has been the Magna Podcast. I've been Lewis Kornfeld. Big thanks to our guest today, Rob Weber. Big thank thanks. You. Thank, thank you. you. Big thanks to Evan Ford Barden, our producer. Big thanks to Grant Michael Goldberg, our engineer. Huge thanks to Ed Herbsman, our executive producer. Yeah. And a huge, humongous huge. thanks to all of you guys for listening. Please give us a nice uh, review on uh, iTunes if you dug the show. If you didn't dig the show, then, then don't keep it to yourself, man. You know, uh, free country. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Rob Weber. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.